He said, I wanted everything to be a contradiction. The pants baggy, the coat tight, the hat small, and the shoes large. I added a small mustache, which I reasoned would add age without hiding my expression. I had no idea of the character, but the moment I was dressed, the clothes and the makeup made me feel the person he was. I began to know him, and by the time I walked on stage, he was fully born. He immediately embodies this personality that is just likable. There were so many times where the tramp could have just given up. I'm like, well, yeah. okay, all done. <laughs> but he kept trying. He kept doing what he felt was right. Yeah. And because of that, it helped out his kid's life for the rest of his life. We can't do everything, but we can do what we can. And maybe what we can do is actually quite a lot. Hello again. In today's recording, Taylor and Connor and I will chat about Charlie Chaplin's film, The Kid. A couple short quotes of the day by Charlie Chaplin himself. There are more valid facts and details in works of art than there are in history books. And he also wrote, Sound has spoiled the most ancient of the world's arts, the art of pantomime and has cancelled out the great beauty that is silence. And for more about the great beauties of this film in particular, let's go into that chat with me and Taylor and Connor. Hi, Connor. Hey, how are you doing? Good, how are you? Good. And here's Taylor. How are you, Taylor? Doing well, how are you? English 202 instructors are encouraged to take a peek at another medium, another art form, just to see if we can kind of triangulate how different artists in working with different art forms are coming at some of the same themes that we see these authors coming at. I hope that the reason why I've chosen this particular film, so I thought, oh, I have to do a film because, you know, this is the major art form of the 20th century, you know, I have to do a film. What film, what film? Well, I hope the reasons why I chose this film will become clear as we as we begin chatting here. Chaplin didn't invent film, but he was close. He was right there at the start. He certainly perfected it in a way. And I'm curious to know what you saw in this film that is the blueprint for the hundred years of films that followed. What is Chaplin perfecting slash inventing that so, so, so many other filmmakers have uh, he he creates a mold that other filmmakers haven't really reinvented, I don't think, even though we have sound, even though we have CGI. What do you see him doing in this film that is still around? A lot of the early films that we have with the Lumiere brothers kind of getting this film stock and shooting more of like real life situations. Some of them, of course, like staged somewhat, but things that people could relate to, whether that's people just leaving a factory is one of the first ones that comes to my mind or the people at a train station. Or the one that's maybe a little more staged is the boy running around with the garden hose. And so I think like a Charlie Chaplin, in a way, he takes some stuff from this early film period. Like George Mielez is like a, was one of the first um, big French filmmakers. And he used the jump, the jump cut a lot. So the jump cut being like, how does this like person appear in the background of my shot? And so, and he was a French illusionist. So he was kind of this magician that was fascinated by film. And so Charlie Chaplin, I feel like for me, at least when I look at his films, he takes these, a lot of these early film techniques but then makes him his own, throws in jokes, throws in the comedy, mm. the timing. And I mean, a lot. there's so many jump cuts towards the end of the kid, especially during that dream sequence. We see a lot of jump cuts mm. and a lot of dissolves that like, oh, how does like, he's laying there when the set looks normal. And then all of a sudden, oh, now the flowers are all there and you can 
cue in that he's on this um, in this dream state, obviously mm. by the cue card as well, telling you that he's in dreamland. But I think that's really fascinating that he's able to take some of these early film techniques, mainly the jump cut for me is what popped out while I was watching that he was able to kind of perfect. And just quickly define jump cut for us. So like a jump cut is like, say that like you have some, you take two different shots and scenarios and then you lay them over to one another um, consecutively. So that way the last shot can be, is like the same framing, but it jumps. Mm. You can see a little bit of like the actor's movement a little bit, but all of a sudden now you have someone in the net and like the scene behind them that is able to interact. So I think mainly a, an easy way to see this in the kid is to go to those shots with um, in that dream sequence when Satan and temptations, like those little, like the devils start coming in. Mm-hmm. So you can see that how they just jump in the background and they're able to just all of a sudden appear what looks like that same shot that was in previous when they weren't there. I see. I see. Excellent. Very good. Lots to follow up on there, but let's hear from Connor. What would you add? Uh, yeah. So going a different route, um, something that stuck out to me was how, how they coupled like humor and tragedy and how right. like those work together because there were parts like where was it the orphanage people, they come in and, and they're trying to take the kid away. And, and then it turns into this like kind of funny fight scene and funny yeah. chase scene kind of a thing. And like, obviously if this happened in real life, it would be awful for everyone, very traumatic and just like not, <laughs> not good, but it was very, very entertaining at the right. same time. And there's actually one director in particular. So his name's Taika Watiti. I think that's how yeah. you pronounce it. <laughs> I think so too. So he's the director for Thor Ragnarok, The Hunt for the Wilder People, Jojo Rabbit, and a couple yeah. other ones. And, and that, va- that hilarious vampire show. Oh, I don't know that one. Oh, it's Holy really funny. Yeah, it was, yeah super funny. Yeah, it's really good. Oh, keep going, keep going, Connor. <laughs> but so in one of his interviews, he talks about how he loves... Um, linking those two together because we a lot of people really really like his films for doing that like with Jojo Rabbit like you're laughing so hard you're crying and then something bad happens and you're actually crying for (laughs) for sad reasons and stuff and so like cool to see way back then them Uh starting on this coupling and then even now people are still using that coupling what you've, you've both set an immensely rich menu. In fact, I'm worried that the rest of our discussion, we won't even have time to cover everything that you've now put on the table, but we'll try. That to me, I was fascinated by that question as well. And it's something that like you can see Charlie Chaplin early on doing. Like he like has this mix of tragedy and comedy, but isn't that the way life is? Isn't that the way life's always been? We have these moments of laughter and happiness followed by immediate moments of tragedy in our own lives. So I mean, ebbs and flows, like we go up and down all the time. And yes. I think like laughter is so important. And so, I mean, he, Charlie Chaplin did a ton of stuff, like a ton of short films early on in his career before he was able to leave his own, leave the studios and have more of an independent filmmaking. I mean, he did everything on this film. He directs it, he writes it, he shoots it. Like he like- The music, he writes the music. Yeah. And that's the thing. I I was going to tell you, like people like need to watch the one on YouTube because I started watching a different one on IMDb that like was like the synth, like John Carpenter style music. And I was like, oh, really? Yeah. It was like interesting. But I was like, I want I want Charlie Chaplin's interpretation of this music. So I like went and halfway through the movie swapped my viewing. I see. But I think this thought of tragedy and comedy, it's something that you see through film throughout Rome Open City. If you've seen that, it's like these moments of comedy followed by immediate moments of tragedy where like yeah. you have the audience laughing at this priest that's maybe turning around these two statues. So like, cause one of them's like not adorned with clothing. And so he like turns them to not face each other. 
And then two scenes later, someone's getting shot in the street by the Nazis that are um, in like occupation in Rome. And so yeah. it's like, I think that we see this in the Taika Waititi doing the same thing. You have this, this boy coming to live with these parents, like a foster kid that's never been able to find a home. That's finally able to find, finally find a home and spoiler alert for like the first, maybe 10 minutes. You can skip this if you want, because I don't like spoilers either, but I mean, she <laughs> immediately dies. And it's like this tragic moment that now he's like, he's found this mom that really relates to him. But then all of a sudden, like, Oh, now he's in this situation where he has to go and face these, um, this new challenge while still throwing in comedy all at the same time. So I think that's a really mm -hmm. fascinating thing that Charlie Chaplin was able to kind of take and evolve. And I think this is like, what was a really early example of that. Well, I want to ask you both how you think he manages this balance, but you, you, this Jojo rabbit example is, is bringing to mind this I don't know if the kid invents it necessarily, but it's certainly early on. It's certainly a important precursor in a lineage of what would you say? hero or anti-hero in charge of a child. I mean, the Terminator 2 came to my mind, that probably dates me. We think of the Mandalorian and, and Baby Yoda, you know, or Life is Beautiful, this is another tragic comedy. I think, uh, what's that guy's name? Roberto Benigni. Have you seen this movie, Life is Beautiful? Yeah. So good. It is, um, owes a lot to the kid. Tragic comedy, a per, uh, an adult trying to protect and raise this boy in the midst of, I mean, in Life is Beautiful, it's much more horrible in the midst of general kind of bleakness. So the first card that comes up on the screen of this film is a picture with a smile and perhaps a tear. This is the kind of epigraph that, that Chaplin introduces this picture with us. And you're right, Taylor, to allude to his previous films. I think this is, I mean, from what I've read, this is the movie that people say, critics say, Ch Ch Chaplin finally mastered the balance between comedy and tragedy. And I don't know if we have anything specific to say about how, because you could imagine as an author or as a filmmaker, as a storyteller in general, it is more likely that you mess up this balance. You try to crack a joke and it's in poor taste because of the, the tragedy that's happening. So I love that. I love this example of the kitchen fight scene where the boy is being ripped away from him and they're like fighting with pots and pans. And I'm laughing, but I'm also quite upset. You know, it's quite serious. It's like, the Iliad with kitchen utensils, you know, a battle is being fought, but it's silly play, silly instruments, but the stakes are really high. How, I mean, again, I'm not sure how I would answer this question, but how exactly is an, an artist, what, what, what fine tuning, what calibrations are, are at play here so that we laugh when we're supposed to, and we cry when we're supposed to. And if we don't quite know how to put our finger on it, maybe we can just move on to something else. But yeah, can we take this a step further? What do you think? Something that I was thinking of was movies can do these kinds of things where like, if I had to watch some of the stuff that we've read this semester, <laughs> it would be <laughs> horrible, very depressing and very like, oh gosh, I can't get that image out of my head kind of yeah, a thing. Yeah, it'd be horrible. Like, just, uh, no. But movies are able to throw in like these little humor things to to lighten the mood, I guess. So like, so it's not that depressing or that that sad to watch because there weren't like super super funny parts, but there weren't super awful parts either throughout the movie. Yeah. So maybe the tragedy isn't too horrific. Maybe that's one answer to the question. Taylor, what would you add? Going off what Connor said, it's like films can do a lot that other art forms can't. It's more, in my opinion, movies, video games, those are kind of like maybe video games even a little bit more. It's something that engages the senses in more than one way. I mean, you are visually seeing something, you're hearing something. I mean, in the case of silent film, I mean, more live music, but you're you're seeing it, you're hearing it, 
and then you're also still engaging and thinking about it. And I mean, video games, even maybe more, you can argue like you're interacting with it, you're controlling it. And so I think for movies is this like way that they can do this is visually showing you what you're supposed to see, but then you're able to still interpret how you feel. I don't think we're always supposed to always have the director's mind, his vision in mind when we're watching movies. I think that we can also interpret what we see. We don't always have to be guessing what he, what did he mean by this? But I think yeah. there are things like that. It's, it's this nice conundrum that you have to find a balance between. So in this scene, I mean, it's really it's quite tragic. The kid does a great job of visually showing you how upset he is that he's getting pulled away. But then the next thing you know, he pulls out a hammer and hits both the guys over the head. <laughs> and so it's like, it's super funny. Like you're able to be pulled out and then you're sucked right back in. It's like, you can read his lips. I mean, he's saying daddy. So it's like, it's so interesting that they're able to, especially during the silent film era, you don't necessarily need to know what they're saying. You don't need all those cue cards in between every shot because yeah. you're visually seeing it, you're feeling it, and you're connecting with those characters. Yeah, I love that example. The, the hitting on the head with a hammer is so funny, but that boy's face, man, when he's in the truck and like holding his arms out, that's the climax of the movie for me. It's That is heart-wrenching. It's so heart-wrenching. Talk about acting. Yeah, I mean, we, we've partly answered that. And I, I do want to start, I mean, it's good to talk about this in general, but I also want to make sure that we hit some scenes kind of specifically. I don't want to, I'm, I, I slightly worry that at the beginning of the course, I gave the impression that I think literature is better than all other art forms. I think they have different affordances and different, they, they are able to do different things because they are they take different forms, yeah? Films are certainly mu much more immersive, much more multi-sensory. You know, this old cliche, a picture is worth a thousand words. There, there's a lot of truth to that. So one image of the boy holding his arms out, weeping, you know, is so much more visceral. It kind of gets us at a gut level in a way that even the most moving passages in Dickens or Dostoevsky, they kind of have to go through the brain first. I don't know if that makes any sense, but okay. So um, maybe we should start at the beginning. Um, uh, a tear, a picture with a smile, and then a tear starts with this chari charity hospital, which I, I don't want to be too annoying about this, but it is a kind of exile from, I mean, so we have this mother holding a child and if you look at the cast of characters, the characters are man, the, the man, the woman, the child, the tramp. There's four characters in this film. So even the fact that they're not named is a signal to me that we're supposed to read this slightly archetypally, like the human family or something. Yeah, so I'm seeing Eve or maybe Mary come out of this charity hospital. And I think the picture of the Virgin Mary holding the Christ child is meant to be evoked. She's got this, she's wearing this hat, this kind of halo-esque followed right by Christ with a crucifix. Any, any thoughts about this? Chaplin laying it on slightly thick here. Like you said, that like picture of the Virgin Mary holding the baby. But then if you go like to the early on in the film too, when she's right outside of the, the wedding, it lines it up where that stained glass window is right framed behind her head in a halo-esque way. I mean, we talk about like editing. If an image following an image, what yep. senses does that evoke? I mean, you go back, I cannot recall the name of the, the Russian filmmaker. Eisenstein, you, maybe. Yes. You go back to that and you have like this picture of a guy that like has this look on his face and you cut to either someone in like a casket or yep. someone eating food or but like there's no food in the bowl or little food. Editing is so important into starting that is maybe a situation in which like, she has to give up something that she loves in order to feel like she can't fully take care of this child. Right. So yeah, it's just really interesting. I mean, you go, even the symbology in the rose with the wedding, it's like the rose at the beginning of the movie is stepped on. And it's like this purity that is like all of a sudden, and the woman's face that's getting married is like, 
what have I done? She's kind of has this look upon her face and the Rose gets stepped on by the man. And then later in the film, halfway through, when she's this actress is prosperous, Rose isn't taken to her. And so like these little symbology things throughout that really sell it for me, um, for these characters that really give deepness to them. And I love this. This is another thing that we could talk about that what films can do. What is the language of film? You've talked about jump cuts, but also editing one shot and then another shot and then another shot is telling us a story, but kind of subtly or slyly. I mean, this isn't that subtle or sly, but there's that wonderful moment when the tramp is holding the kid on the curb and he looks at the baby and then he looks down at the sewer grate and kind of opens the sewer grate and then looks back at the baby. And you, we're being told what is in the tramp's mind because of what shots follow what shots, you know? So it's a very carefully curated um, thing that we're dealing with here. That is really interesting because I'm thinking about how all books are different from movies and what they can do one versus another. Yeah. And I was thinking of how that would be portrayed in like a book and it would probably be something along the lines of his thought process. And he's like, well, do I want to, do I want to hassle myself? Do I want to have this kid? I, there's this right here. I could get rid of him. And like, he could explain all of his reasoning. But for me as a reader, I don't think there would be a point of me reading it and being like, oh no, is he going to, is he going to drop that baby down? Like a great, (laughs) whereas with a movie, we can infer stuff, but there's that anticipation. Oh no. (laughs) It's quicker in a movie. All of this is done much more economically. And maybe this goes back to the question of tone. If this was narrated as a kind of internal monologue, should I murder this baby? Suddenly it's very deep. The tone is way off. But we see the we see his silly costume. We see the silly look on his face. And when he has this moment of self-doubt, we laugh instead of are shocked, which is a weird thing to laugh at. You know, I don't know. I can't explain it. It's a weird thing to laugh at. Okay. And I, um, I, yeah, yeah. And just Taylor. going back, I I'm sorry if I referenced a I did reference a shot that wasn't in the YouTube version, so it must have been in the original cut. Um, no, don't of worry. The movie. So if anyone's confused by that, like um, the shot of like the stained glass window, the in the and wedding, the rose, that yeah. might not be in the version you're watching. It, but it it's weird to know what is authoritative and what isn't authoritative. What he signed off on and what he didn't. I don't actually know the final word on this. What is the final cut? But I think mostly after that, they're pretty the same. I mean, I haven't done a shot by shot comparison, of course, but. Yeah, I think it's like about a six minute difference kind of deal. Um, I think he went back and re-edited it in 1972 when he went to record the music. So he composed all the music in 72. And that was the re-release version that you find. That's the 53 minute version that uh, is one of the first ones to pop up on YouTube. Oh, I didn't know that the music was that late. Oh, okay. Um. I kind of miss those scenes, to be honest, because we see the man who who let, lets the photograph drop into the fire. And I think, who is this schmuck? He, you know, he doesn't really get much screen time. It seems like a slightly curtailed story. How great are those scenes when the tramp is trying to get rid of the kid in, in that other stroller? Um, that was probably my favorite part of the... <laughs> the say part, why, Connor. Like, especially the part where he's like, because there's not a ton of words in the movie, but the part where he's like, excuse me, you, you dropped this. <laughs> so, so considerate, like, oh, you dropped your pen or whatever. You dropped this baby out of your hair. Yeah. This is yours. <laughs> and then he walks up to the other hobo and he's like, oh, can I have, you can tell what he's saying by the way he's moving. He's like, oh, I have to tie my shoe. Hold this kid for a second. Immediately runs off. Answer this question for me. Why are we charmed by such behavior? This is quite scandalous. It's quite a scandalous thing to do. Drop this baby in some hobo's lap and run away. But I think we're charmed. This is I find this rather endearing. We don't immediately see this and start chastising the tramp. 
Instead, we laughed and we think, oh, of course, of course he would. Any explanations as to why we love the tramp so much? This is before he mans up and takes responsibility for the kid. We love him even before this. We love him in his in his vices. We love him in his vices. Any ideas as to why? The first thing that came to my mind was the tramp is kind of like this little puppy dog. Yeah, maybe it'll make a mess or whatever, but you can't really be mad at it just because he's <laughs> <laughs> he's just so silly. He's in his own world. He's doing his own thing, kind of like uh, Don Quixote, like that kind of uh-huh. That kind of thing there. But then also there's very few instances in, in normal life where people have this opportunity of gaining a child because <laughs> it's normally there's a thought process and, and actions behind it. It's not like the store drops and you're like, oh, there's a baby. <laughs> like, yeah. do I want it? Do I not? Like, I could say no. <laughs> so I think that's where I guess I'm not as critical to him because that part isn't too realistic. Like I'm not going to walk out and see a baby all of a sudden and like, well, I guess this is mine now. And the tramp, I mean, there's some lovely, um, we know that the tramp is poor, even if we don't know prior because the tramp is a character that recurs across Chaplin films and Chaplin does a great job of telling us the backstory. I'm thinking of the close up of the glove. So that the first shot he's in the background, he walks up, he stops by the trash can to light a cigarette, but the camera gives us a close-up of the gloves he's wearing. He opens his cigarette tin and it's full of these cigarette butts and cigar butts. This is a visual story. We're being told that he has nothing. <laughs> he takes his gloves off and then he thinks about putting them back on, chucks them in the trash. He's not in any condition to take care of a kid. So maybe that's why we forgive him. I love this puppy dog comment. He is a kind of innocent, innocent, um, he's an innocent. You know, I don't know, Taylor, what would you add? And then I want to, maybe we could use this to ask why he is costumed the way he is and why he is stylized slightly cartoon, cartoonishly. Yeah. So I actually wanted to start my comment off going off what Connor said um, a little bit with like a quote from Charlie Chaplin's autobiography about the character and how he kind of like oh, great. embodied it. And this is just on Wikipedia. Don't think I was like diving into Charlie Chaplin's autobiography in the past week, but it's still a great find. He said, he said, I wanted everything to be a contradiction. The pants baggy, the coat tight, the hat small, and the shoes large. I added a small mustache, which I reasoned would add age without hiding my expression. Mm. I had no idea of the character, but the moment I was dressed, the clothes and the makeup made me feel the person he was. I began to know him. And by the time I walked on stage, he was fully born. Um, I think that's just fascinating. Maybe he didn't have any like conceived notion of who this was, but you see this character and he immediately embodies this personality that is just likable. I mean, you're re- it's it's weird, oddly relatable in some way. It's like we don't relate to him because maybe we feel that we have a similar situations or similar life experiences or morals, but it's we connect to him because I think we connect to these characters that aren't ourselves sometimes in comedies. I think it's something that's easy for us to connect and laugh at a situation that we may never find ourselves in or characters that make decisions that we would never make anyway, but we want to see someone make that decision. We want to see them mm-hmm. do something that's out of left field per se. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's something that's so funny is in that scene where he's trying to just get rid of this kid. He's like, I, I don't have, I can't do that. I can't do this. He's like, look at me. Like, he's like, they're sh- telling us like, look at me, look at how I'm dressed. Look at how I'm walking. Do I look like I need a kid? And <laughs> and so, and, and he doesn't. And I think they sell it so well. They make it just so funny in the way that they are showing us his character so quickly. Cause I think that's, it's like yeah. a movie's first expression. I mean, first impressions, just as in life, you right. look at someone and you immediately have preconceived notions, but the way he walks, the way he's dressed, you're like, Oh, he kind of looks clownish in a way. And so like, 
you're immediately connecting all these ideas that you have yes. with who this character is. I love that quote. I had not read that before, but he does he does indeed embody opposites, largeness and smallness. I want to talk in a minute about how he embodies masculinity and femininity in this film in a wonderful way, but also clownishness and kind of what I'll, what I will call regalness. He has these big clown shoes, but what I love about the first scene that we see him walking into the foreground is how erect he's standing, how proud he is, to, this cane that he is holding. He's like wearing the clothes of this clownish hobo, but he seems to be surveying his kingdom like some kind of, you do know what I mean? Like he, human dignity is indestructible. That's what I love about the tramp. You know, nothing gets him down. There's a kind of like eternal hopefulness or a kind of an eternal perseverance or an eternal cheerfulness, you know? Uh, he can always love the world. He can always stand tall, even though the pants he's standing tall in are about eight sizes too big. It's just so endearing. And the Quixote thing, yeah, it takes the kind of delusional... I, had, I asked you this very provocative question. Is he the American Quixote? I, I don't know. Maybe that's a dumb question, but I see similarities there. I see a kind of necessary... In, in order to be so endearing, he has in some ways, ignore his situation, if that makes sense. And I love him for that. I just love him for that. Yeah, he kind of reminds me of uh, Mr. Bean or like the Pink Panther guy. Oh, interesting. All those people, because they're, they act in the same way. Like they're, they never really get down, even though bad things are happening or they have every reason to stuff. They, they're like, no, I'm right. Let's just do this or like whatever, whatever it is. Excellent. So he finally takes responsibility for this kid in a, I mean, not to sound too annoying or get too heavy, but in a kind of Dostoevskyan way, I think. He he doesn't first. He tries to fob it off on him and her and him and her. And then says, I guess it's up to me. He sees the note. And maybe it's the note, the handwritten note by the mother. And this moves him and convinces him, this is my job. You know, no one else is going to do this. I have to, I have to take responsibility for this kid. Although, again, just to go back to this opposites, this isn't a lasting decision on the part of the tramp. How wonderful is it that when the cop discovers their window breaking scheme and is chasing them, the tramp is kind of kicking the kid away? <laughs> like, I don't know you. I have nothing to do with you. So again, he kind of lapses back into his previous selfish vices, again, in a way that paradoxically makes me love him even more. Well, yeah, and it's like funny, like he's not only protecting himself in that instance, but he's also like, I think, still looking after the kid, you know, it's like. I kind of think that surely was not their first scheme. They had surely right. been going through different cycles of how can we scandal and swoon people into giving us their yep. money. And so it's just really <laughs> funny that I feel like he has these like immediate moments where he knows what he needs to do. And so he does it and he's thinking of himself, but at the same time, he's still thinking of that kid in some way. I'm not going to ask, is the tramp a good father? Cause I, I think it's clear that he is. How do we know that he's a good father? Like wh what is it about the behavior of the boy even though they're robbing people, <laughs> I say that he's a good father. I think he is. Yeah. How do we know? What is it about their relationship that we love and that we admire? The thing that really got me was the scene where I can't remember if it was him or his son, because they both took turns cooking, but someone was making pancakes. Yes. They have all the, yeah, yeah it was the son. He it's the son, like yeah. a ton of pancakes, put it on the table. He gets there. And then he counts it out and makes sure it's even and then like splits that one. So it's like, it's a perfect even, which obviously the kid, I couldn't eat that, <laughs> that many pancakes right. now. <laughs> he doesn't need that, but he shows that they're equal. Which Excellent. was really, really cool. 
even though in some ways, logically, they're kind of not because the tramp's bigger. So logically, he should get more pancakes. But no, he defies logic in favor of kind of this excess of charity. First of all, the kid knows how to make pancakes, which I see and like, oh, this is great. You know, he's like already self-sufficient. I wish I wish. I mean, my son's eight. He doesn't know how to make pancakes. And this kid's only five. So I watch this and feel slightly chastised. But yeah, the evenness. I love that. I don't know if other things like uh, immediately he takes the kid, the baby, before he grows up back to his, it's not even an apartment, it's this little hovel that he lives in, you know, and immediately has built all these contraptions. The kid is hanging from the ceiling, is drinking from this kettle. The tramp is cutting, is making diapers for this kid. So he immediately, with a smile on his face, the tramp settles into the domestic chores of raising a baby, uh, which I love, I think is important and telling. Oh, and um, also, I'm talking too much here, but um, one of the first things that we see the boy when the boy is five years old, one of the first, I think it's the first interaction that we see them have. We see the boy polishing his nails on the curb, yeah? Which I love, because it's precocious kind of adult behavior. And then the boy walks up to the apartment and the tramp immediately inspects the boy's face, cleans the boy's face, looks behind his ears, looks through his hair for lice, I guess. Even though they're living in squalor, something about the dignity of, you know, like I, this is still important. These little rituals, these little ablutions, these little, you know, some cleanliness, he, he maintains some order, which I, I I admire a lot. Should we talk about the city? Chaplin is obsessed with cities. And I gave you that list of titles of his films. Yeah. City mm-hmm. Lights, et cetera. Modern Times, The Immigrant, Easy Street. Yeah. The Bank. Do you watch this film and think, Yes, that is what it is like to live in a city in America. What has changed since this film was made about urban life? I mean, I feel like that was kind of the, what, the turn of the century. Things were starting to go more urban at that time. I mean, industrialization was kind of booming at this point. And so to me, it seems like, yeah, like these movies, I mean, and obviously you're pigeonholed into like what productions in LA that mainly were all True. the productions were filmed at the time, but... I think in some ways this they were doing with what they had. Like the city doesn't look like a city does now. Like, I mean, the city looks like more like my small town that I'm from. And in some way, it, it's interesting that urban life was probably fascinating to those people at that time. It was like this, it's mm. something that maybe other people wouldn't have access to. It's something that they can connect with a world that's somewhat foreign to them. More cars in the street than maybe exist in their little small communities. And so I think... I don't necessarily, I see it through a, like a, the, lens, the historic lens more than I see it through my right. modernized lens. Because now when I think of cities, they're way more crowded. They're way more going on. I feel like it's weird that you can feel more isolated in a big city if it's some, depending on what your story story you're telling, you know? And so I think it's just interesting how different it seems that they frame this these modernized and urban environments. Yeah. I mean, there's still lots of poverty, of course, in cities, lots of crime, of course, in cities. But this film does portray urban life with more this there's so much texture in this film the the brick is all all the brick is crumbling all the doors are falling apart every single chair that is in if there's a chair in this film it's half broken so there's just so much dilapidation and of course dilapidation exists in modern cities too but i feel like he turned the the volume knob on dilapidation all the way up to 11 maybe that's partly stylized or maybe not maybe it's authentic this stylized choice to make urban life seem they're living in this kind of like bombed out ruin almost. You know what I mean? I just find that so interesting. Connor, what would you add? So something that I thought was interesting, and I guess it's at least with modern entertainment and stuff portrayed similarly, because I haven't lived this way at all. But like 
they're they're poor very much so and except i'm gonna i want you to keep going except i love this detail where they eat like kings they couldn't be poorer and yet that (laughs) stew that is ladled out is like he piles this enormous mountain of stew for this kid and they're like somehow burping and they've got like mile high pancakes so i love that like they're poor beyond poor but they're eating like kings connor keep going Mm -hmm. So with that whole lifestyle, oftentimes it shows how morality is, is different for them because like they were doing their little scheme to make money. Yeah. I, at least from right now, I can't think of them showing any other way that they made money Right, and they need money to survive and everything. And we don't feel bad or we don't chastise them for, for this little ruse or whatever. It's just their way of life kind of a thing. And so I think it's interesting how, yes, technically it's wrong. You're stealing or, you know, being dishonest or whatever, but it's, it's different for their lifestyle. And it's cool because it's kind of like the same for people nowadays, uh, somewhat in the same lifestyle. We think about, um, and again, I don't want to sound like an annoying teacher, but Dickens think about the poverty in Dickens and what it, what it leads to or the implications of the poverty and the Dostoevsky talks about, you know, uh, people who don't have <laughs> people who don't have full bellies. They do. It's weird. I'll never get over this. Uh, where are they getting all this food? But no, your point's very well taken, Connor. They do what they have to do. And again, I don't want to say that morality is relative necessarily, but there are, there's a spirit of the law perhaps that they're obeying in violation of the letter of the law. And we certainly forgive them for this yes yeah i think like another interesting thing going back to that urban part and aspect kind of bleeding right into is like this poverty that might be because i mean they're focusing obviously on this poverty area or what of the city yeah i think that's something that films still do today is that they have this sense of community and so it's like there's something of like oh you see these characters kind of come back in at certain times it's like oh like you feel like you're part of this little communal area of the city like i feel like spike lee does that really well in his movies urban environments that where like the communities tighten it and like the people are banded together to do something and so i feel like this sense of community and you see that in a tale of two cities with like the french revolutionists and the people that meet up at the bar and the shock i think that this sense of community is really portrayed well in, in the kid that you see also portrayed in other literary works or uh, modern films. You know, I hadn't thought of Spike Lee, but Do the Right Thing, he must have seen The Kid, don't you think? Do the Right Thing, it's it's similarly, I mean, it asks similar moral questions. It similarly takes place around these few city blocks. Very interesting. Also, I mean, it, it does take place within this poor neighborhood, but there is a kind of other side of the tracks plot. She becomes a famous movie star. She becomes super rich. She lives in this mansion. People are bringing her all these roses. She's wearing all these fur coats. She crosses the proverbial railroad tracks and and gives toys to the orphan children. How sad is it? That moment when she's sitting on the step beside her own son and she doesn't know. The kid's just smiling away. And later the doctor, I think it's the doctor who gives her the note and she recognizes. She has this moment of recognition, which is a trope. Aristotle talks about this. Anagnoresis, I think it's called the moment of recognition where a central character in the plot realizes the, some important fact, you know, we saw this in Oedipus Rex, if you took 201 from me. So I think another reason this movie is so successful is because Chaplin is playing into some of these ancient, very ancient storytelling techniques. So we have to get to this dream sequence. Some people talk, I mean, when I read about this film, people are quite ambivalent about it. It feels tacked on. Tonally, it feels different from the rest of the movie. It's quite absurdist and surreal. 
and quite moralizing. It's quite heavy handed and it's, and it's moralizing. I'll just ask you a general question. What do you make of it? I mean, I liked it better than some of the other similar scenes. I think of Dumbo when they get drunk. Oh, <laughs> like, how bizarre is that? It's just like, it could be so much weirder. <laughs> so I'm glad it wasn't <laughs> that crazy. It's a good point. Um, <laughs> but I have no idea. Like I was trying to take notes as I was watching it. And at the end I thought about it and I was like, it seems like from what they were portraying, like the devil kind of made everyone do those kinds of things. And that's, that's about as, as deep as I could get. <laughs> They're in this kind of Eden world where there's no jealousy, there's no lust, there's no poverty. Beds are free. Notice in the background, the sign goes from beds to 10 cents to beds are free. No poverty, no money. It's kind of John Lennon-esque, you know, realm, you know. Uh, and suddenly out of nowhere, this jump cut, suddenly the devil is just there. He's just there. Where does evil come from? I don't know. Taylor, how does this strike you? I'm torn on it. I feel like there are parts I like about it and then there's parts, yeah, I agree somewhat. It's like, oh, is this like a little bit just kind of like an afterthought of some sort? Does it relate to our story at all? But I think it does. It kind of shows this sinless, like perfect world that all of a sudden introduces these various temptations or sins like the jealousy or whatever it is. And so I think it's him in a way escaping his situation. Like, I mean, he's just like, well, the kid's taken from me. Like this world's mm-hmm. not fair in some way. And I think it kind of like, yeah, like fantasizes about can a world be perfect? Right. No, it can't. And so like he's, and then you find that out as the dream goes on. These, these things get introduced and the world's not going to be perfect. They're going to have the hardships of life and people are going to go against you because of those temptations and sins that are inherent in each one of us. And I mean, it ends in a tragic, it's sort of a tragic way, like this nightmare ends of him getting shot. And it, and again, it goes back to that comedy aspect. You're like, oh, he's, wow, he's flying. Like and back, back then, like, I mean, even to me, it seems like, oh, that's really revolutionary in a way to to do these stunts. I mean, him, him and Buster Keaton, I mean, revolutionary. Oh, yeah set blocking and knowing how to um the timing comedic timing of these stunts that they pull off but then all of a sudden the policeman just shoots him and you're like well wow and then like the kid has to come through and see his dad is tragically been shot and so and then he's woke, of course woken up and then able to reconnect with his kid and so it's interesting that it kind of goes through that like can life be perfect and it kind of goes to that nice ending and so it has this conundrum of well man maybe life isn't going to be fair but then all of a sudden he still is able to get his kid so Seems to be there's maybe this weird little um, uh, sequence, I guess, when it comes to him dreaming about it and then still, I guess, fulfilling his wish in some way, you know? Yeah, there's kind of two endings here. One is tragic. He gets shot down. Uh, the other, uh, that's kind of in a dream, so it's not real, but we think it's an allegory. So it's telling us some larger truth. But then when he wakes up, the real ending is quite happy. So we ask, I mean, I, I primed you for this a little bit, this, the, you know, modernism quote, exists in a state of tension between faith and doubt, between conviction and skepticism. Do you think that this film is optimistic about human nature slash the modern world? Or do you think it's pessimistic about human nature slash the modern world? I think overall it's optimistic. I mean, I feel like with our centralized characters, especially, it's wanting us to focus on their decisions, their choices, and less on maybe some of the other secondary characters, such as like the older brother that's fighting the tramp <laughs> at um, a certain point. And so for me, it seems like it's focused on this, this nature of, are we inherently good? And like, of course, the mother falling into this sin 
early on in her life that affected her in some way that she had to give up her child. But then obviously like the rose is reincarnated in some way. It's brought back to life. She's, she's like flourishing again and able to take in this kid again and wants to and desires to. It wasn't like, I mean, immediately after giving up the kid, she's already like, she sees like the little bit older version of the baby, you know, on that bridge. And that's like at her feet. And I, I, maybe this isn't in the cut on YouTube. I'm not sure, but, but she immediately recognizes like, Oh my gosh, what have I done? I feel like I could have done what I, I could have done what I could. That's sometimes all we can do. It's like, we're, we can't do everything, but we can do what we can. And so I think for me, it seems like it's human nature is more of an optimistic perspective, at least in the film. But but not naively optimistic, kind of realistically optimistic. You know, there is a loud, I mean, I think the villain of the film is that the man, quote unquote, the man, who just ignores his bride and doesn't take any response, lets her picture fall into the fire. Seems to be an artist, right? He's in that, in that studio with that painting. Interesting uh, sly dig to artists there. I wonder if Chaplin is expressing some kind of private beef. Well, I think he was. I mean, like in some way when I was reading, doing a little bit of research about the film, it was, it seemed to me that he, his father left him um, at a young age, left their family at a young age. So I mean, was was his father an artist? His father just got up. I'm not sure if his father was an artist. I don't remember reading that, but I do remember reading that his father had left him and his mother and his mom had tried her best to take care of him and his half brother for so yeah. long, but then she ended up even kind of falling and was in, put into a mental institution. So she had troubles in life. So I think he had a lot of disdain for his his childhood in some way and his father that like necessarily just kind of got up and left. And so I think that's some way very inherently influences the story of this film. I love that comment. We can't do everything, but we can do what we can. You know, the, the tramp, he can't give this kid the perfect life, but he can teach him how to make pancakes he can do some things, you know, he can give him a roof and a bed, etc. So, yeah, I don't know. Connor, do you come away from this film feeling optimistic about the world and humans? Yes and no. <laughs> I mean, the whole part about like, oh, well, you're not a good parent. And so we need to take the kid back. The kid has a family and it, like that's just awful for the kid. Yeah. That's just so sad. And this is all made up and everything. But knowing that that happens every day. But then it's also on the flip side, it's an optimistic view that even though bad things happen, like there were so many times where the tramp could have just like given up and like, well, okay, all done. (laughs) But he kept trying. He kept like doing what he felt was right. Yeah. Because of that, it helped out his kid's life for the rest of his life (laughs) i love that after the roof chase i wonder if this film i don't know maybe it's in buster keaton films too this film could be uh the first uh rooftop chase scene we get in the history of cinema you know it's quite a glorious um sequence isn't it jumping from roof to roof being chased by a cop jumping onto the truck embracing the kid in the back of the truck remember and then the driver looks around Chaplin jumps out of the back of the truck and like a mother bear or something, chases the driver away three times. He kind of stomps, does this wild gesticulation, stomps, and the driver kind of stops and turns around. Chaplin, the tramp, sorry, charges him again, stops, charges him again. This is a heroic, this is beyond heroic. You know, he could have given up. He could have, we can't do everything, but we can do what we can. And maybe what we can do is actually quite a lot. You know, that jumping from roof to roof to rescue your child is a lot. You know, so we can do a lot. I'm, I'm quite inspired. But then again, I think about this. I know we're wrapping up here, but think about this allegory. It seems to me that Chaplin has been reading notes from underground. Yes, he's been reading his Dostoevsky. I think he is suspicious of utopias and knows that Eden, there will always be a snake in the garden. 
human nature will always find a way to break things. So we need to stop dreaming about utopias and live in the real world. But in the real world, look what can be done. You know, lots of great stuff can be done. Well, thank you both for a great chat. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Thank you for coming so well prepared. Thanks. Uh, thanks. Have a good evening. Poem of the Day is by the American modernist poet Hart Crane, who was a great fan of Charlie Chaplin, and who wrote a poem about him called Chaplinesque. We make our meek adjustments, connected with such random consolations as the wind deposits, in slithered and too ample pockets. For we can still love the world, who find a famished kitten on the step, and no recesses for it from the fury of the street, or warm, torn elbow coverts. We will sidestep, and to the final smirk, dally the doom of that inevitable thumb that slowly chafes its puckered index toward us, facing the dull squint with what innocence and what surprise. And yet these final collapses are not lies, more than the pirouettes of any pliant cane. Our obsequies are, in a way, no enterprise. We can evade you, and all else but the heart. What blame to us if the heart live on? The game enforces smirks, but we have seen the moon in lonely alleys make a grail of laughter of an empty ash can, and through all sound of gaiety and quest have heard a kitten in the wilderness. That's it for now. Soon out a recording about Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own. I hope you enjoyed this film and this chat about this film, and that you're looking forward to the few remaining final readings of the course. <laughs>